Welcome to Mind Tricks Radio, where we'll explore contemporary topics in psychology through interviewing creative and innovative thinkers in the field. I'm your host, Dr. Aaron Kaplan. Thanks for tuning in. We're here today with Dr. Akihiko Masuda, Associate Professor of Clinical Psychology at University of Hawaii at Manoa. Previously, he was on faculty at Georgia State University from 2007. Dr. Masuda was born and raised in Nagano, Japan, and moved to the United States in 1993 when he was 18. He earned his bachelor's degree in psychology at West Virginia University. He earned his master's degree in applied behavior analysis at University of the Pacific in 2000, and his PhD in clinical psychology at University of Nevada, Reno in 2006. His professional areas of interest are broad and include acceptance and mindfulness-based behavioral therapies, diversity and multicultural competency, Zen Buddhism, and human struggles and happiness. He is the author of more than 110 peer-reviewed papers and book chapters. His recent works include Mindfulness and Acceptance and Multicultural Competency and Handbook of Zen Mindfulness and Behavioral Health. Aki, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, yeah. Yeah, it's great to have you here. So start off by telling us a little bit about yourself and how you got into the field and anything that you'd like to share with us about your personal and professional life and background. Okay, yeah. So I am an academic psychologist here. So I'm currently working at uh, UH Manoa. I'm an associate professor of clinical psychology. Uh, so how am I getting into it? So probably you can tell from my accent that uh, I'm not American, yeah. So right. I'm from uh, Japan. So um, I was born like in 1974. And then when I was 18, like in 1993, I decided to come into the state is a good idea. Mm-hmm. And I was so kind of mesmerized by American cultures. And then sort of kind of, then I met psychology. And I told my parents uh, back in 1993 that, I'll go back in two years, and then <laughs> here I am. And you never went back. Uh, yeah, I went back occasionally to right. see them, but uh, they never really thought that I have my career and a f- uh, new family yeah. here in the So you, you were mentioning, Aki, that you're actually from Nagano, and yeah. I, I was saying that I, I visited there and how beautiful it is. Yeah, right. So uh, I grew up in a very countryside of Japan called Nagano, yeah. Mm. So it's not like a Tokyo or Osaka is uh, urban. It's a very rural country kind of site. And that really kind of shaped probably who I am, what I care, what's important. And that might also relate it to some of the kind of wisdom that uh, sort of kind of put together in acceptance and commitment therapies are today's topic. So, right, we're talking about acceptance and commitment therapy, something that you've been very involved with for a lot of your career, it sounds like, uh, and have had some mentors and colleagues that you've worked with in this. And I'd like to hear more about your background in terms of how you became interested in ACT specifically. You would mention some of your upbringing around that. Yeah, acceptance and commitment therapy is oftentimes called ACT. It's a cognitive behavior therapy. Yeah. When I was studying cognitive behavior therapy back like 20 years ago, it is more sort of constricted how to be kind of rational and how to be more objective and stuff. It's a very kind of uptight kind of way. So I thought that that approach is 
of course, it's effective. Might not be so suitable to me, in part because it could be a cultural difference. I'm from Japan. Mm. And then I accidentally opened a book about acceptance and commitment therapy. What it says sort of, kind of reminds me of one of my grandparents, who is a Buddhist monk. Oh, wow. <laughs> what's, what's the similarities that you saw there? Uh, it's sort of, it's kind of funny. It's a go with the flow kind of idea of being kind to yourself and others. And that's sort of kind of different from uh, what we as a psychologist oftentimes talk about what the outcome of therapies looks like. We mm. don't necessarily aim for that, uh, be grateful to or be kind to others or kind of sort of kind of blend it into your surroundings, yeah. Mm-hmm. So that's some kind of unique kind of aspect of ACTA. We're not necessarily going to go in simply after uh, mental health. Mental health is a part of it, but uh, in addition to that, it's also tap, you know, emphasizing uh, what you want to be about, mm. you, you know, and uh, what's important for you in your life. So it's very existential-ish kind of way. Right. You know? I was going to say, it sounds like philosophically, it's more existential right. in the way it, you approach right. things. Yeah. Yeah. So some people actually kind of asking if uh, the act is like a th- more like a therapeutic techniques or it is more like kind of way of living kind of things. And then I'll say maybe both. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Within acting a therapeutic approach, there's certainly kind of wisdom of what the life you like to be. About. And this is sort of what you connected with, with your Zen um, Buddhist uh, family yeah. resonated with you. Exactly. Exactly. Sort of kind of Zen family, like Zen kind of really kind of emphasize the harmony and then uh, asking sort of kind of existential kind of question. It's not like what you should be, but what you like to be. And then when you sort of kind of talking about you, you're not just an individual being, but you in the, your interpersonal social kind of context. Yeah. Got it. Yeah. Well, I'd like to talk a lot more about the different components of uh, what goes into ACT therapy and, and the whole philosophy behind it. Yeah. Uh, and we'll get into some of those details. Right. Let's start off, though. Tell me a little bit about how was ACT developed as a therapy here? Right. It's a kind of interesting story. Maybe I can kind of talk about how ACT developed from the field as a general, but also that from the perspective of an originator. The originator of ACT, actually one of them is Steve Hayes, and he's a well-known psychologist. You're in the field, probably you have heard of him like one way or another. Well, yeah, I mean, I remember studying him in graduate school, and I always thought of him as more of like a strict behaviorist. Right, exactly. So when I started reading your stuff, I was a little surprised of how he was exactly. involved with this. Yeah. Actually, you, you're right on target. It's because... Uh, the act is coming from the strict behaviorism in terms of the way it's approached to this subject matter. But uh, the topic it deals with is uh, what's a happiness, what's sort of kind of well-being, why we struggle. So it's kind of existential kind of issues here. So the journey of act kind of start with that personal experience of Steve Hayes. And he openly said that he was struggling with chronic panic disorders. He tried to kind of figure out how he could get rid of panic first. And then he eventually learned that the, actually trying to get rid of is not that. Yeah. <laughs> it's more how to go along with yeah. the possibility and the struggle with panic and then still have the life that is sort of, sort of kind of tender, 
precious to him, I guess. So what's the nice thing about ACT is that there's a lot of like a personal story into the developed sort of kind of systematizations of ACT. And then that later, his students and colleagues add their personal story. So a lot of the suggestion and technique using ACT that is something that we all can relate it to one way or another. Yeah, because you feel like you've been there, and mm -hmm. then uh, you might gonna go there if you kind of take this uh, act message. And there's this concept of the third wave of cognitive behavioral therapies, right. which I understand ACT would be considered part of that. So right. would you speak briefly about what the third wave involves? Right. Third wave behavioral therapy or third wave cognitive behavioral therapy are still kind of group of so-called cognitive behavioral therapy. Depends on who you're talking to, the history of cognitive behavioral therapy is said to be kind of categorized, understood in three waves. And mm -hmm. then uh, third wave behavior Third way, cognitive behavior therapy is that the technically yeah third generations of cognitive behavior therapy. The unique aspect of it was uh, kind of informed by what we call mindfulness or acceptance informed therapy. So, what the acceptance and the mindfulness try to capture the wisdom is that instead of trying to tackle eliminate the issue, you know, depression, anxiety. Why don't we kind of allow ourselves to some of the experience, even at the difficult, to be there? That's the acceptance part. Mm -hmm. And then instead of exclusively focus on the problem solving, be mindful, be open to what your experience unfold, and then it could be a good thing, a bad thing. And then increase the mindful awareness to notice what's important for you. And then based on that, choose that uh, action that reflect what's where you kind of care. Mm -hmm. So does that kind of yeah. make sense? Or yeah, so that? that makes sense. So ACT would fall kind of in that category of the third waves of this. Right. Are there other therapies that... Oh, yeah. So there's other therapies, a dialectical behavior therapy. Oh, DBT, yeah, right. Yeah, DBT. And then the mindfulness-based cognitive therapy, MBCT. All this kind of movement of the Kabat-Zinn that mm -hmm. the, he created, sort of mindfulness-based stress reduction in mid-80s or 90s, we still kind of have the kind of traditions of the mindfulness movement happen in uh, late 80s and then uh, mid-90s, really. Let's talk a little bit briefly just about, practically speaking, oh. who practices ACT oh. clinically and how can one get that therapy? Like, are there ACT certified therapists? Oh. How, how, how does it work in the real world for ACT and practice? Right. And a very quick and dirty answer is that anybody can do ACT, but uh, usually any trained mental health, behavioral health practitioner offering acceptance of commitment therapy it could be an individual basis or group or sometimes online or self-help kind mm. of pace. Unlike some therapeutic orientation, you really have to have certificate to do practice act. You don't necessarily gonna have to, but uh, I'm a part of the act therapist. We actually encouraged to practice act at least like a few years to be confident. And then there's also act training workshop. It's a uh, sort of kind of organized by Association of Contextual Behavioral Science. Mm -hmm. And we recently have that the Hawaii chapter here. But they offer more kind of comprehensive ACT training. 
So interesting thing about ARC training is that uh, you don't learn not just ARC technique, but also kind of perspective of what's like to be an ARC therapist in a room with a client. It's, and then really kind of touching, getting into the very nature of what's like to be a human being. Mm-hmm. And which I might gonna talk a little later. What's like, yeah, act account of human being or happiness or well-being. Sure, and that's again that existential piece R- of it. That right, it's beyond teaching technique. It sounds like exactly. Yeah. So my kind of sense is, if you have a good sort of an act consistent heart or kindness or wholeheartedness, I think uh, to be a therapist, you you wanna be quite humble and then really continue to practice and learn. Aki, I came across several concepts and terms right. in reading some of the things that you've written and some of the other ACT literature. And I'd like to talk about some of these concepts and see if you can explain them. Right. I, this may be a good point for <laughs> right. talking of sort of more of the philosophical approach toward ACT. So one of them was this idea of uh, concepts of healthy versus str- uh, destructive normality. What does that mean? That's a kind of, yeah, that's a very important question to ask. That's a, the foundation of ACT philosophy. Unlike some like a cultural sort of, kind of message we get, ACT say that uh, being happy is not normal. In other words, it doesn't really negate the happiness. Sometimes in our society, we kind of felt pressure to be happy or confident mm. mm-hmm. all the time, yeah. But uh, that's not the foundation of ACT. ACT say life is sweet and sour. Mm. And the excessive pursuit of happiness in the sense of that the feeling confident, great, all the time is perhaps not really healthy. <laughs> mm. Might it be accurate to say that normal is just however you feel? And uh-huh. there's there's no right or wrong or good exactly. or bad. Yeah, exactly. So that's a part of the DBT teaching yeah. as well. So whatever that uh, feeling you have, it's perhaps that the right one at that moment. You don't need to have to negate when you feel discouraged, acknowledge you feel discouraged, and then when you feel anxious, that's anxious. So there's nothing wrong with uh, having these feeling. The tricky thing is that when we actually try to change this sort of, kind of raw experience of emotion in a particular way, for example, I get anxious, I try not to be anxious. Sometimes it's causing that the backfire. Yeah? The more you try not to feel anxious, you get sure. anxious. For example, like today, right before this like, podcast recording, I was like, oh, shit, I'm like, so nervous. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I try to forget about it, ignore my anxiety as opposed to maybe acknowledging i feel right. anxious and there's some good reasons for that exactly. and that's okay right right you're not trying to negate you're not trying to rationalize why it's okay or whatever it's just kind of way it is but uh, also after asking given you're anxious yeah what do you try to accomplish in this case that i want to have a conversation with you yeah and so being un- me being anxious or not maybe not as important as uh, you hosting, you allocated time for me to meet you and have this dialogue, sort of kind of foundation that ACT is not so much about fixing the issue. And mm-hmm. so ACT doesn't really say that having a mental health concern is abnormal. That's sort of our life. So mm-hmm. what's really important is that with without this concern, how would you like to live? 
yeah. real life, more or less. Yeah. 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 You talk about the importance of language in defining reality. I think that's probably tied in a little bit to what we were just talking about. Right. But could you explain that a little bit more? So if you're looking at the geeky act, mm-hmm. like a journal or articles, I would say that the core of human suffering is our language, mm. the way we, we use language. The very simple term is that you can just simply call it the, a mental activity, how our mind works. What's really going to happen to our mind, according to ACT, is uh, whether with its good intention try to help us, try to help us make sense of the situation. And yet, oftentimes, the mind just like spinning itself, kind of detaching us from that the sense of kind of reality. Example like I have was that when I first like, got taught the class as an instructor, I had in my mind say that, you know, you're a terrible teacher, your English sucks, nobody mm-hmm. could understand, da 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 And uh, I started going to buy into it when I actually, in fact, uh, in front of the students and the talking, I saw, sort of kind of caught up with that, the, my dialogue in the head, mm-hmm. as opposed to kind of seeing, getting in touch with that, the, what's actually kind of going on. The matter of fact that uh, I wasn't that terrible, it seems like. Yeah, so. <laughs> your English is fine, <laughs> so, right? But, but uh, uh, that was, that's what you were telling yourself. Exactly, right. And even to this day, after living here in the States over 25 mm-hmm. years, I have this core belief is that my English is not good. I'm a terrible like a, you know, speaker, yeah. teacher, instructor, and stuff like that. So uh, what's the beauty of our mind is it can craft a very sophisticated story, mm-hmm. and then, then sometimes that stories act like a reality of it. That's a kind of part of that the act, kind of exercise, kind of going after our kind of mind. Yeah. What does mind say and what your experience say, the different things, yeah. And this part of it really, to me, reminded me the most of like classic cognitive therapy, right, right, right. cognitive restructuring, examining the, uh, right. the narratives that one has and trying right. to see where whether or not they're working for oneself. Right. And I imagine that the mindfulness piece of it is being right. mindful of the way that you're right. thinking about things. Yeah. Exactly. The interesting and difference, although nowadays the cognitive restructuring appraisal, the concept of then and the mindfulness a little bit kind of overlapping. Mm-hmm. But uh, what we actually kind of traditionally learned about the cognitive restructuring was that you have this thought in a particular content, like a, I'm a terrible English speaker, for example. So by restructuring, you change it to, actually, I'm a okay English speaker. Yeah. So changing the content from I'm a terrible speaker to I am okay mm-hmm. English speaker, that's said to be kind of cognitive restructuring, reappraisal. Right. But what the mindfulness kind of tried to do is that uh, instead of like targeting the content of it, like, okay, I'm a terrible uh, English speaker, can you also look in at the thought? You, you sort of gonna step out from this uh, mental dialogue and then more looking at the content of thought. That's a little difference uh, between more kind of conventional cognitive behavior therapy to 
third, acceptance of mindfulness. In other words, that the actor oftentimes DBT not necessarily kind of care about the, what the mind say and try to change the content of it, but uh, change the client's relationship with their mind or thought. So, Aki, would it be like I'm imagining if I had a patient I was working with and he said, I am just the worst lecturer there is. My my accent and my language is terrible and everybody thinks that I suck. And the classic cognitive restructuring might be look for evidence or data to refute that and, 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 and change it. From the ACT approach, it might be taking a step back a little bit and saying, Uh, what are these thoughts that I, I'm having about right. myself and how I'm experiencing right. reality and right. more in general? Like, right. Would that be sort of an accurate way of looking at it? It's, yeah, it's an accurate way. And uh, another thing she would say was that, uh, okay, can you repeat what kind of thought it just show up? And then this like a mental like a narrative is that I'm a terrible lecturer, la, 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 la. So do you notice that the thought is coming coming up in another things actors asking other mindfulness do you also notice the part of you noticing this very thought can you tell the difference can you mm. feel that the slight difference until this question perhaps this client really kind of mesh with this very thought identify himself or herself with the thoughts where but by asking this question that the, can you notice part of you having that thought part of you noticing that thought and then if you could step out from this thought a little bit, what does it look like? This is a little bit esoteric kind of question initially. So the client, at least initially, kind of often confused, what the heck are you talking about? Mm-hmm. But a little exercise like this over and over again that the client sort of can learn in that. Instead of kind of stepping in and trying to erase the story, stepping out from that uh, sort of, kind of mental chattering. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I see. Right. Yeah. So there's this monkey mind going on. Exactly. Uh, yeah, that's a mo- yeah monkey mind. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So you're stepping out from that right. m- monkey mind. Yeah. So there's this other concept called experiential avoidance. Okay. What's that about? When we encounter some issue, we make an effort try to solve it. Example is that when this room is really hot, uh, it's a freaking hot, and then uh, we turn on the AC to cool the temperature down here. Yeah. We do that similar stuff to our emotional and difficult thoughts. Mm-hmm. When we have a negative thought, we try to turn off that voice. Or when we feel anxious, you kind of turn down the volume of it. This problem-solving effort is called experiential avoidance. Avoiding that the very moment of experience, oftentimes used to talk about a way to cope with the difficult thoughts and the feeling. Mm-hmm. And then, like I said, so what's wrong with that? Because if this experiential avoidance, in fact, reduce or get rid of the difficult thoughts, that's fantastic. But uh, oftentimes, that's not the case, yeah. Mm-hmm. If I'm understanding correctly, right. a person has an experience of sort, some sort. Yeah. They're feeling hot, they're feeling cold, right. they're feeling embarrassed, they're feeling right. anxious. Right however they're feeling, and the tendency is to want to just do something to make change it, that, make it feel less bad. Right. But the there's value in sitting in it and trying to understand why is this making me feel this way? Right. 
maybe sometimes it's as simple as turning on the AC and the person decides, right. hey, no biggie, I'm, I'm right. feeling hot right. because it's hot in here. Right. But for some of the ones like anxiety... Yeah, to make things worse, yeah. Yeah. So when the people with the panic attack really explain the full-blown panic attack is that it doesn't go from that the little anxiety to panic attack. This is sort of a repeated kind of process. I have to control this fear. I have mm. to control this anxiety. And then things get kind of amplified. Mm-hmm. And the similar thing with the case of like a depression or the rumination. Why am I this way? And then uh, you actually kind of end up experiencing that sort of kind of chronic, deep depression. What the act kind of try to say is some of our intentional, well-met effort to control difficult thoughts and feelings and personal experience end up causing that uh, backfire. So mm. the first things in act is that uh, simply kind of recognize or notice that called a paradoxical or paradox of a very well-intended effort to make the issue go away. So I'm not really kind of saying that, okay, forget about try to solve the whole issue. But uh, what the actors say that know that the things you can change and the things you cannot sure change. Yeah, and, and imagine in, in some cases there's more concrete evidence of avoidance like like drinking or right. just like just doing everything one can to just solving the feeling of not feeling good. Exactly, exactly. And some right. of those are destructive and some right. of them may not seem destructive but right. still are avoiding the root right. areas where the person right. may want to examine through yeah, perhaps mindfulness. It, it helps that moment when you came out of it. There's a related concept here that you write about called clean and dirty discomfort. Right. Is that related to, to this exactly. idea? Exactly. Yeah. So that, uh, like I mentioned before, like from ACT perspectives, life is sweet and sour. You know, throughout the course of our life, we've got to experience pain or discomfort sooner or later. You know, maybe loss of loved ones or you get sick or you kind of discourage. So... From the act perspective, the discomfort or pain kind of naturally coming out to your life is called clean pain and or clean comfort. And the dirty discomfort and the dirty pain was that discomfort or pain coming from our effort to make this clean pain go away and getting the situation kind of worse. Kind of going back to the example is that it is kind of natural for us to feel anxious in a certain kind of situation. If you make an excessive effort to not to feel anxious, try to control it, suppressing it, that causing the kind of backfires. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's uh, what, I, what the act mean by uh, dirty discomfort sure. and then the pain. That makes sense. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit more about mindfulness. Now, mm-hmm. there's uh, Several concepts that relate to mindfulness right. that I saw mentioned in the ACT literature. Six that, in particular, right. that I was hoping we could go over. Acceptance, right. cognitive diffusion, contact right. with present moment, the right. observing self values, and committed action. Right. And so I was wondering if we could go through those briefly. And okay. So let's start with acceptance. Right. Um, I, I think we've touched upon that a little right. bit, but just to summarize that, right. acceptance and mindfulness is... Right. Oh, yeah. Acceptance. The word acceptance is a kind of tricky word. When, you, when we work with a client and then tell the client that you might want to accept it, 
oftentimes it doesn't, that doesn't really kind of sit well <laughs> with the client. Does that mean I suck it up or I gave up? Right. So that accept- comes up a lot. Right. So acceptance from act perspective is not that. Acceptance is more like being open to the experience when somewhere kind of difficult in the joy that comes up as it is and without trying to fighting in some way. So when the difficulty show up, you actually move your head to that. You kind of lean into it. You don't have to like it. You don't have to tolerate. So you know, talking about the anxiety, when anxiety comes, you simply can acknowledge that, okay, I have anxiety. And then you feel anxiety, okay, what's like? Yeah, without trying to change it. I usually have that little bit of pain around the chest mm. and the tight around the neck. That's my anxiety. Acceptance is more like being true, being kind of getting in touch with very ex- you know, experience. So the person feel exploited, person feel whatever kind of things comes up. And this is a frustration, anger, resentment. Being open to it. So accepting one's own feelings. Yeah, and then or recognizing it. Recognizing. Yeah, acceptance, like, it's not necessarily, like, you know, put the blame on you, but uh, notice whatever, you know, experience shows up with you and then what that is. And acceptance work itself, uh, sorry, acceptance doesn't work by itself. It it also kind of package with value Mm. and then committed action. This is a very experience you have that you're frustrated, upset. When we work with a couple situation that the PTSD, mm-hmm. we hear a lot of like a difficult story from clients here. And we don't really tell clients to accept that your unfortunate circumstance. Notice that the whatever experience you have because of this experience, you feel quite discouraged. Uh, and then uh, value peace comes. Okay, given all this experience, how you and I would like to move forward. So What's important for you kind of things. Yeah. yeah, so Aki, I don't know if we have to do these in, in order because there's some kind of a protocol right. in addressing these, but right. if there's not, we could just talk about the values part. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, okay, that's actually fantastic. Yeah, Okay. usually like a theory, uh, therapy doesn't really kind of go yeah. in a linear fashion. Here. Right. So I'm kind of usually kind of going from one topic, another topic, and check. So yeah, the, so how do values relate to the right. acceptance piece? I, I yeah. think that the... The value is the probably most important concept practice of act. As I mentioned, that uh, what the act is about, the goal of act is work together with the client to identify a construct uh, importance in client's life. Mm. So I'm being a cheerleader to assist uh, or support the client to pursue the action reflecting the values here. Yeah. Kind of talking about the value, and I also have to kind of talk about the acceptance too. Act doesn't necessarily say all the time that you have to be open to the difficult experience. We encourage client to be open to the good experience or difficult experience only when doing so is going to help the clients moving toward a kind of life that is important or help the client moving toward activity that is mm-hmm. meaningful. What would be some examples of values that would come into play with a client? What I usually do is kind of starting with happiness questions, uh, end of therapy, end of journey kind of questions. I ask, okay, 
if this like psychotherapy turned out to be a wild success, mm-hmm. what the outcome looks like. I was asking the client, if I were there in that moment with you, what I see you doing there, feeling that. And sometimes clients kind of stuck with, okay, my issue is all gone. So suppose that your issue is all gone, what do you do there instead now? So what's your uh, relationship with the partner like? Mm-hmm. Or what's a personal career looks like? Or what's the relationship with friends and colleagues like? So that uh, value is something like people kind of intrinsically care. It's not that something that uh, someone tell you to do. Mm-hmm. That's some kind of life purpose or meaning. I think if, if I was the therapist doing this, I think what I'm hearing you say is like, I would want the client to identify what values are important to you right. Right. so that when you're looking at the way that you're interacting with and experiencing the world in a particular way that's not consistent with the values that are important right. to you, that might give you some insight about right. what direction you might want right. to go with the way that you're right. relating to things. Right. Is that? Yeah, that, that's that. So the questions I often ask is that whatever clients bring to therapy could be a depression, loss of confidence or relationship, you know. So what these things costing you? Mm-hmm. You know, what what keeps you from doing? You know, what does this thing keeps you from doing? And then those are kind of questions kind of I ask. Kind of interesting things about actors. Yeah, we're gonna talk about this like a mental health kind of issue within a large kind of life, purposeful like life domain. Asking this sort of kind of question of the what this issue keeps you from. Mm-hmm. It's a kind of way to kind of talk about value. Sure. Yeah. And committed action, I'm assuming, relates to that. So, you're right. yeah. so committed action is that engage in not just any actions yet, the action that you find uh, important and then uh, reflecting what you care, mm-hmm. what you find dear. Why committed? Why the value is sort of going to helping you to show you the direction, yeah? where you, are, you want to be with your life, which mm-hmm. direction you want to go. And then uh, metaphorically speaking, committed action is that uh, every step you take mm-hmm. to walk toward that direction. I think that relates back to the mindfulness, right? right. So you're committing yourself to taking a mindful action right. that is going to put you along the path that's mm-hmm. consistent with your values, right. with, with what you want. It, right. It's a real mindful. It's not going through and I'm going to take action, right. but I don't really know why or I'm taking right. action or why I'm doing this. Right. Would that be accurate? Yeah. So value and the committed action is that the person's kind of intentional mm-hmm. kind of effort, a mindful, intentional sort of kind of choice yeah. to engage. Yeah. So there's this other term here, yeah. which I've never heard before. Cognitive diffusion, and right. I had to look at that a few times because I was like, "Oh, cogni- cognitive diffusion, yeah, okay." Yeah. But this isn't that. This is diffusion with a cognitive, D-E-F. Yeah. So explain that. The cognitive diffusion is probably part of like a mindfulness. Yeah, mm-hmm. the best way to explain cognitive diffusion was that the what's like to be infused with uh, our thoughts and the feeling. Yeah. So mm-hmm. suppose that uh, you're client or you're a therapist or anybody, you know, what is your like, most difficult, painful thoughts about you or self-narrative? To me, it's that uh, 
I'm a worthless person or mm -hmm. I'm no good is that the story. Usually for us, when this kind of difficult thoughts coming up, it's popping up our head. We can't really kind of separate ourselves from that very thoughts. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you, I almost identify yourself with that thought. In in other words, kind of fuse. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So cognitive diffusion is sort of an opposite of it. Yeah. So through sort of kind of noticing openness exercise, that you kind of learn to kind of stepping out from your thoughts, and then you're looking at the thought instead of looking from thoughts. Yeah. In other words, you can diffuse and gradually from. Mm -hmm. So would that be consistent with this idea, which I think is a Buddhist idea about like, I, I am not my thoughts? Right, exactly. Yeah. 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 So I'm not my thought, yeah, in a kind of experientially, meaning that uh, can you experience, not just in your head say that I'm not my thought, can you experience that uh, you are sort of kind of separate from or a little bit different from your thoughts, yeah. Mm -hmm. As I mentioned before, that I like ACT in some way. A lot of concept of ACT is very overlap with Zen Buddhism or Buddhism. To me, I can kind of feel that the ACT message is more openly in a sense. That that's something that my grandpa used mm -hmm. to tell me yeah, mm -hmm. many times. Yeah. So the observing self, which is another concept in mindfulness, Yeah. again, it's similar to that idea. Yeah, yeah. exactly. So... Observing self or self as a context is a really that one that the part of you experience. So can you notice or experience or recognize part of you noticing your own experience? So there's some separation from you as a, a being or perspective from mm -hmm. that uh, sort of a content or monkey mind. Yeah. yeah. And contact with the present moment. Again, right. I, that sounds very similar to these other concepts. Right. Yeah. Exactly. So there are six different processes I talks about here, but uh, they're really kind of interrelated, or they're talking about the same thing, but with a different angles yeah. in a way. Yeah. So this is a sounds like maybe a strange question, but mm. is there any difference between ACT and Zen Buddhism? The answer to this question kind of depends on that... Uh, who you ask, at the kind of practice kind of level, I don't think anything, okay, Steve Hayes is going to kill me if I say what's the <laughs> matter, but uh, I don't think anything is so new yeah. in ACT. ACT is really kind of form this way of doing therapy to help us more recognize, uh, notice that the like ancient kind of wisdom, it's mm -hmm. not just the wisdom from the Zen Buddhism, but uh, Kind of traditional, something like a Christian wisdom too. And if you really read the uh, literature, you can also notice that overlap with traditional Native Hawaiian cultural practice mm. too. Mm -hmm. uh, recognize yourself the part of kind of whole or kind of aina. And then when we encounter the struggles, what is more healthy, constructive kind of way. Yeah, it's interesting when, when you read and study about different right. philosophical backgrounds and right. cultural backgrounds, a right. lot of this 
wisdom seems to be just built into right, the culture. Right. But in, in the West, we've had to deconstruct it and write about it and right. publish right. about it. But the wisdom is all, all there. Yeah, it's exactly. Just, I'm guessing in the West, it's just a way that act right. is one way that exactly. these, all of these concepts have been right. put together in a way that we right. can relate to. I think, yeah. yeah, I think so. So what the Steve Hayes used to tell me about the, it seems like Buddhism, spirituality, different, or other psychotherapy, sort of starting from the, the different places, but in the process of sort of inquiry, refinement, kind of end up kind of getting to that the similar mm-hmm. destinations about what's like to be a human being and mm-hmm. what's wellness. So I think so. And then another kind of funny thing is that if you dive into act process moment, moment, People find that dark therapies looks awfully like a psychodynamic approach mm-hmm. too. Mm-hmm. You know, like a psychodynamic approach is really emphasize the importance of moment, moment can change even like subtle things. And yeah. uh, that's really important uh, for act therapists to be respond to in therapy session. Sure, because in a lot of psychodynamic it's therapies, a, the emphasis is placed on trying to understand a person's uh, unconscious uh, right. reactions to right. things and unfold like in the present yeah, moment. Yeah, yeah, so. right. Well, let's talk a little bit more about right. just the practice of ACT in uh, a therapeutic setting. Is there anything else you can tell us about? If a person wanted to explore acts uh, right. in their life and their therapy, like right. what would they be looking for there? What I tell clients is that if you're looking for the way to get rid of your issue, anxiety, depression, or confidence, whatever, I'm not the right person, and then, but in a gentle way, mm-hmm. and I ask a client if you know how. Please let me know what mm-hmm. I'll do. But uh, if you also want to work on the things important to you, what you want with your life or your kind of partner or family, kids, or work, then I might be a good person. In many ways, it is true. For the artist, the purpose of actors is not so much about uh, eliminating so-called mental mm-hmm. illness or uh, symptom of depression, anxiety, or other, how to sort of kind of more can reclaim yeah. the life you want and then the important, not in a aggressive way, but a little much more kind of tender kind of way. Yeah, it sounds like it's a lot of self-exploration. Exactly, yeah. How long, I mean, you don't need to put a time frame on right. things, but when people come for therapy and connect with ACT therapy, right. how long do they typically stay in sessions for? Okay, the, the, this question is kind of hard because de- depending on that uh, situation, but uh, sure. at least in the research kind of wise, uh, we have the 10 weekly individual ACT sessions and usually that's the typical range. But uh, when I do practice sometimes, I haven't done practice after I moved to Hawaii four years ago, but uh, when I did a little practice in Atlanta, Georgia, that's my previous academic institutions, probably four or five kind of sessions uh, weekly, or sometimes could be you know quicker, mm. or could be, 
That's pretty brief, actually. It's a it's a yeah. brief. Uh, in in uh, but it also kind of really kind of depends on the client. Sure. It's, but I also said that longest session I have was over like thirty sessions, and then you know sometimes sure I'm not sure that the therapy has any success or. <laughs> well, or, you know what I'm what I'm gathering from ACT is that uh, it would be pretty difficult to measure success other right. than the patient's subjective experience of whether or not it works for them because we're right. not really measuring symptoms right. or relief of symptoms. That's not the primary metric. Right. At the same time, it's kind of funny thing is that when you do the ACT research, actually, I'm mm-hmm. also doing the ACT research here, the client's symptom, in fact, actually decrease throughout the course of therapy. That seems to be not the only one, and that doesn't seem to be the primary goal of ACT. So by working on the promotion of the life that is kind of meaning, so that kind of aspect in improve, I'm not sure the word improve is the right word, and then subsequently or coincidentally, the symptom reduction kind of happens. Because so, it's kind of funny when you kind of think about that the, if you begin to channel your energy and effort for the things you like to do or things important to you. We only have a 24 hours a day. So soon or later, you, you allocate that the time that you previously spend the time for symptom to mm-hmm. this activity that is meaningful. Yeah. So sometimes it's kind of incompatible. So by promoting that the kind of constructive living that also naturally, or as a byproduct, decreasing the symptom experience seems like. Sure. Well, that makes perfect sense. And yeah. I'm remembering what you said earlier about the paradox of right. uh, anxiety and panic, mm-hmm. that the more that you focus on it right. and think about it, the worse that it gets. Right. So if you're not focused on symptom reduction, right. and right. you're not focusing in on the anxiety, <laughs> that the right. paradoxical effect there then is exactly. it, it'll improve right. without you focusing on the symptoms. So. Yeah. Um, I can see how that would work there. Right. Aki, tell me, are there any final thoughts that you have about this subject that we didn't cover today that you uh, think would be helpful? I have many, but I, it's just one that's popping up now is that sometimes when we are the therapist, we, we are the client, look at the act, you know, reading it, it seems a very encouraging, happy, happy, joy, joy way mm. of therapy. In fact, when we do act... Sometimes it's kind of quite challenging in, in a way that I'll tell you that, uh, or I'll tell you that some of my like, former clients said that I'm the most sadistic uh, <laughs> oh, no. therapist because uh, I'm very gentle and encouraging, but I still ask the clients to do the things they avoided to do, right. difficult to confronting. That's something that I sort of want to kind of share with uh, you, that when we do act, it's, it's, it's very experiential or committed action-based. At least initially, this committed action is more painful than the symptom experience. Yeah. We actually dignify this challenge. Yeah. Why are we doing this for? You know, if it's just for the sake of symptom reduction, maybe we shouldn't do it. But uh, by us client and therapists work together confronting the pain eventually lead us to that the life that the clients want well that makes sense with the experiential avoidance you're (laughs) basically putting the mirror up to the person (laughs) saying 
we really don't want to avoid this right. anymore. Yeah. And that's the very thing the person right. wants to do. So it's probably very uncomfortable for yeah, a lot of people. You don't force students, but you're still sort of encourage. You ask a client to go in difficult territory. So as a therapist, you also have to know what's like to confront the difficulty. So that uh, for therapist act, it's also that uh, in some way reflecting what the li your life is about. For that reason, it might not be a typical behavioral therapy or cognitive behavioral therapy. There's a lot of kind of existential, emotional. Yeah. Yeah. Aki, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been wonderful having you. Yeah. Thank you so much. Yeah. Dr. Akihiko Masuda, Associate Professor of Clinical Psychology at University of Hawaii and Manoa. It's been a wonderful conversation. Thank you for listening to Mind Tricks Radio. I hope you have enjoyed the program. For more information about Mind Tricks, please go to my website, www.waikikihealth.com. Please be sure to subscribe to Mind Tricks Podcast and accompanying blog to be notified of new episodes of Mind Tricks. Please be sure to follow Mind Tricks on Facebook by following and liking posts by myself, your host, Dr. Aaron Kaplan.